I'm John Dennis. It's Monday the 7th of December. Today, as landmark talks on tackling climate change begin in Copenhagen, China's science and technology minister strikes an optimistic note. His country will almost definitely see the peak of its carbon emissions between 2030 and 2040. As negotiators begin the crucial 14-day summit, The Guardian unites with 55 other newspapers around the world. Newspapers have never come together and done this kind of thing before, but there again, the world's never faced an emergency quite like this. And we'll hear how global warming has affected the Arctic. It's really the biggest and fastest change of the planet ever made by human beings. Also today, the American university that's refusing to graduate fat students unless they take a healthy living course. Having somebody down your back telling you you have to lose weight to get your degree, I never heard of it. Sigourney Weaver on her new film with James Cameron, Avatar. You know, I got to know Jim in a different way once that film ended. That He's right. really so witty, so charming and so warm. And the story of Britain's biggest ever cash robbery. Kent Police and the CPS have probably spent as much money prosecuting the guys they caught as they've actually recovered. First, here's Bill Overton with the news and a look at today's papers. Gordon Brown says he's found £3 billion worth of government cuts. In a speech he's making today, he says more than a billion can be saved by streamlining Whitehall through cutting back on using consultants and energy savings. He also has plans to cut a total of £12 billion over the next four years by greater efficiency. The Chancellor will give more details in Wednesday's pre-budget report when he's expected to announce a windfall tax on bank bonuses. Delegates from 192 countries are gathering in Copenhagen to start the long-awaited UN summit on climate change. 15,000 are expected to attend. The UN's chief negotiator says pre-conference talks have gone well. Many countries, including China, the USA and the EU, have already made commitments to cut emissions. Climate change minister Ed Miliband says politicians face a huge challenge to convince people that action should be a priority. 500 homes across the country are taking part in a scheme to make greening your house affordable. People in London, Birmingham and Sunderland will try out a whole house energy makeover. They'll be allowed to slow the costs of things like new heating and solar panels so that repayments are lower than savings on fuel bills. Workington in Cumbria sees its new footbridge open this morning. Army Royal Engineers have worked for a week to construct the 50-metre bridge made of preformed steel. It makes only the second connection between the two halves of the town cut off after two bridges collapsed. The rail bridge survived the floods. The new bridge is named after the policeman who died trying to clear people from the dangerous bridges, Bill Barker. 14 days to seal history's judgment on this generation. That's our paper, The Guardian's front page headline this morning, above an editorial calling on politicians to shape history in Copenhagen. It's the same front page being published by 56 newspapers in 45 countries, who we say are taking the unprecedented step of speaking with one voice through a common editorial. It concludes, overcoming climate change will take a triumph of optimism over pessimism, a vision over short-sightedness. Several papers choose the Chancellor's plan to tax the bankers for their leads. It's Darling tells high earners you must bear the burden in the Telegraph. Super tax to claw back bankers' huge bonuses in the Times, much the same in the Mail. The Financial Times explains it'll not mean a windfall tax on the banks, but rather a tax on the bank staff getting bonuses. The Independent looks at Alistair Darling's plans for the whole economy under a headline, The Big Squeeze. It says, new research shows the middle classes will join the rich in facing the 
biggest squeeze on their living standards in decades next year. The Times chooses its back sports page for its exclusive on motor racing. Reporting today, the head of Formula One, Bernie Eccleston, has agreed to save the British Grand Prix at Silverstone by giving up his £60 million fee. The paper says it's allowed a £300 million deal to go ahead. Most of the other papers choose Everton's last-minute draw in the Premiership to all with Spurs. That's because Everton's goalie Tim Howard, who also plays for England's now World Cup opponents, USA, saved a penalty from England striker Jermaine Defoe. England won, USA won, chance the sun. On the front pages of the tabloids, it's still more gloom for golfer Tiger Woods. Three more lovers emerge, says the Express. Now there are six, Tiger, shouts the mail, and it asks, is number seven British? There's more news and sport all day at guardian.co.uk. This is profound decision-making. We're trying to effect a revolution. We don't know where this will end up. That's how a Downing Street source described the United Nations Summit on Climate Change in Copenhagen, which opens today. Well, China is the world's biggest carbon emitter. Jonathan Watts is our Asia environment correspondent. He's in Beijing, and he's been speaking to China's science and technology minister. Wang Gang has said in an interview um, with The Guardian that his country will almost definitely see the peak of its carbon emissions between 2030 and 2040. While this is not official government policy, it's very interesting that for the first time, such a senior figure has stated fairly categorically um, that the peak is within sight and that the government may, at some point in the future, we presume, be ready to mark that out. But at present, China is, is trying to avoid setting a peak date. That's one of the, the key elements in the upcoming Copenhagen summit. So it has to be taken as this particular minister's individual point of view, but interesting nonetheless. The Guardian's among 56 papers around the world publishing the same editorial today. It's an unprecedented step. And it says history's judgment of this generation will be shaped by the next 14 days. I mean, can you give us some idea of, of the importance of this summit in Copenhagen? The Copenhagen conference is absolutely momentous in that it's trying to redraw the way the world does business. The way humans carry out their activities for next 40 years, the, the only thing that's probably come close to something that's ambitious uh, was probably the equivalent of the, the Versailles or the Potsdam conferences that followed made the wars. And on those occasions, what the negotiators did, what the leaders did, was they pretty much carved up the, the world and divided up the territory between the most powerful countries at the time. On this occasion, it's different. They're not trying to carve up bits of territory. What they're trying to do is set out how much carbon each country can consume, basically, over certain periods, so by 2020 and by uh, 2030 and eventually up to 2050. And, of course, to a large extent, the amount of carbon that uh, a country is able to burn will determine its potential for economic growth and the livelihoods of its people. It will also determine how much of an incentive, how much pressure there is on that country to try to find a new model of growth, to move towards renewable energy, towards clean transport and smart grids, all these things that uh, we hope will be part of a cleaner, um, safer future. The world's response to the climate emergency has been pretty feeble so far. Do you think that 
world leaders and their negotiators will be able to rise to the challenge at Copenhagen? Frankly, it doesn't look good. The way governments operate hasn't really changed. Politicians in any country, whether it's democratic or even in countries like China, feel that, of course, they have to keep the living standards of their people at a higher and higher level each year. And so when they go into Copenhagen, the most effective thing they could do is actually announce constraints on how much carbon they're going to use. But that's a terrifying prospect if it means that living standards might decline. So there will be movements in lots of different directions, but whether leaders will be strong enough to take really tough measures looks like a distant prospect. And in particular, we know already that the Copenhagen conference will not produce a legally binding document. It will not completely replace the Kyoto Protocol. And instead, we're going to have some sort of political statement with a series of targets and perhaps even numbers for how much money rich nations will give poor nations to adapt. But it won't be the really solid legal document that had been hoped for at the start of the year. Jonathan Watts in Beijing. Now, Alan Anderson is the former editor of New Scientist and he's the author of a book called After the Ice. It's a study of not only the impact of global warming on the Arctic, but also how the transformation affects people, animals and even entire nations. He told Alok Jha, presenter of our Science Weekly podcast, what's happened to the Arctic over the last two decades. Well, it's really the biggest and fastest change of the planet ever made by human beings. The summer ice is simply disappearing. So compared to only a decade or so ago, uh, the summer ice, an area 10 times the size of the whole of Great Britain, of extra ice is melting away each summer. Colossal area is vanishing. And to my mind, this is not only you know, a dramatic change to the Arctic and for the people of the Arctic and also the animals and so on that live there. But it, it is the ultimate warning call to the planet. I mean, the top of the globe turns from a shining cap of white to black water. W- what more dramatic message could there be to everybody else that something major is happening? I mean, a whole set of issues come about because of this. I mean, the, the, the idea of the, the ice disappearing completely implies that different countries will t- try and take mineral rights up there and this is one of the issues that climate change is bringing it's the it's that there are potentially wars there are potentially uh, resource issues I and mean, w- what's happening on that front uh, in the in the arctic well that's, that'll all happen a little more slowly because uh, people try to dramatize it will happen tomorrow but the first thing we want to know is how fast will the ice go completely some people now think 2013 because the ice is growing much thinner as well as growing smaller in area so if it's gone by 2013 that is far too quick for nations to react and bring in the rules that we need to govern a new Arctic. And there will be a squabble for resources. There will be ships going straight across there. Currently, a ship can go through there without any special oil spill protection. It can run into ice and ruin the Arctic. So if it happens fast, we're in deep trouble. And what about wildlife there? Uh, the iconic pictures of polar bears sort of on, on bits of ice that are melting. I mean- Bluntly, they're all going to go. Uh, the uh, the polar bear, uh, the narwhal, and other really iconic creatures of the Arctic are all totally dependent on ice. And the, the polar bear also lives by hunting seals, which are themselves dependent on ice. So they're all going to go. And the recent estimates is we've got until really 2050 before polar bears are just left in a few corners of the Arctic. And in the new open sea that will be the Arctic instead of the ice Arctic, there'll be a new symbolic predator 
And that's going to be the orca, the killer whale. So instead of seeing the, the polar bear on the ice, we'll see the fin of the killer whale. And to my mind, that's a terrible, that's a terrible change. It, it is the Arctic now, just just a, a sort of canary. Uh, we can't do anything about it. It's, it, it's, it's gone. Yes. Uh, there's, there's nothing at all we can do to reverse any of this. We would have to make such dramatic cuts. They go well beyond the cuts that you've been talking about, as hoped for, which we don't seem to be able to get to. So the ice is going to go. The feedback loop has started. It soaks up more heat and, and it continues. So the concern now is as you say, with a race for resources, with oil and gas being found there, with ships moving in there, how are we to make sure there isn't a double wave of environmental damage? Pirate fishermen moving in, the fish are moving north already, southern fish, great fish to catch, and the fishermen will be going after them at great speed if we don't move quickly. Alan Anderson, and there's more from him in a special edition of Science Weekly, focusing on Copenhagen at guardian.co.uk slash environment. As we've heard, today's leader column is published by newspapers across the world. It's on the front of today's Guardian. Tom Clark was one of its authors. I suppose it's sort of saying three things. One is it's explaining that the world faces an extraordinary emergency. Secondly, it's explaining what's going to happen in Copenhagen and what we want of our leaders. And thirdly, it makes the point that we do have a chance to make things better if we can come together and transcend parochial differences and that's what all these different newspapers have come together to do today the upshot being that the leaders are expected to do the same and how did it come together because it's an unprecedented step 56 newspapers from around the world printing the same leader column there's a quote in the paper uh, saying from uh, alan rusbridge our editor saying well you know newspapers have never come together and done this kind of thing before but there again the world's never faced an emergency quite like this I think the driving force at this end has been our deputy editor Ian Katz um, who's talked to people from other newspapers around the world and has been very gripped by the issue for a long time started to see that there was a shared interest in India and in China and one or two other places and then he, he, he sort of thought well how far can we push this people have been emailed up getting them to agree in principle that they might be interested was was one thing but it was quite another to kind of hammer out the details of the text and um, to the extent I've been involved it's more in the kind of trying to work out how to keep people on board when people from different parts of the world might have a different view about what they want to have precisely in this editorial. Tom Clark, and there's full coverage today at guardian.co.uk slash environment. Also on the Guardian's website. On the sports site today we've got highlights and analysis from all the weekend's Premier League games, uh, analysis and fallout from that. Um, we'll also have news of the spat at Stoke City where there was a clash between the manager and one of the players over the Christmas party. Uh, the manager apparently tried to ban the Christmas party in a kind of um, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves style. It didn't go right. Also, more fallout from the World Cup draw. Um, Football Weekly will be discussing that. And there'll also be news from the Davis Cup tennis and all the rugby games over the weekend. And that's all at guardian.co.uk forward slash sport. Obesity is at epidemic levels in America, particularly among black women. Lincoln University in Pennsylvania is the oldest African-American college in the US and it's taking controversial action. Students with a BMI, or body mass index, of over 30 are being forced to take a fitness course before they can graduate. Jim Deboy, head of the college's health department, told The Guardian's Ed Pilkington about the course. Those students who do test into the Fitness for Life class, they will actively participate in series of activities, the walking, the aerobics, the water exercises, the Pilates, the stability balls, the BOSU. It's designed, again, to get those students' heart rate up to the target heart rate zone. 
for the purposes of again of expending calories. Now in addition to the physical activity there's also the idea of trying basically to empower students that they can re realize and recognize they can make a difference, that they can make progress in this issue. Now, as you know, obesity is an epidemic of growing proportions in America and as well as, well as in industrialized countries around the world, and particularly impacts the African-American population. But put in your own words to me why you've come up with this policy. Why do you think it's appropriate? The HPR faculty felt in 2005 that there was a, a real need to address this obesity epidemic and its comorbidities that is nationwide. And this is one attempt. Granted, it is extreme some would argue it is radical but we felt this was an attempt again to make a dent in the obesity comorbidities that are plaguing all Americans and this is our, our one small step right and the criticism the obvious criticism put against it is that you're discriminating against people with a, uh, a BMI above 30 uh, and separating them off from those who have BMIs beneath 30 and requiring that they, in an uh, obligatory way, that they then carry out a fitness course, otherwise they don't graduate. What do you say to those accusations of discrimination? First of all, the, the whole process of sorting out students from the low BMI and, or healthy BMI and those that are at risk for these comorbidities is a very, very difficult and emotionally laden issue. We know that. However, given the, the consequences the impending doom, if you will, of students with very high BMIs, it's, uh, it's obesity is going to rob the individuals of quality and quantity of life. And faculty, educators, have a responsibility to be honest with their students. And if we identify any factor that we believe in our heart of hearts is going to impair them from maximizing their life goals, we have to tell them that. Many times that message, that feedback, will be perceived as unsettling, uncomfortable, and awkward for faculty and student alike, but to keep our heads in the sand and to do nothing perpetuates the problem. Um, I arrived here in 2006 of August and I was told that I would have to get tested in order to graduate. Right, now there's a lot of controversy around this new policy obviously. At worst people are saying it, it makes people feel stigmatized for being fat. Did you feel that as, as someone who had a BMI over 30 and had to take the course? No. Um, I actually didn't have a problem with it because I know I'm short, but I know I'm healthy because the doctor told me so. What changes have you made in your life? Um, I stopped eating fried foods, drinking soda, and eating pork. Tiffany Humphrey, um, now you uh, were, were made to take the course. Well, why did you think it was wrong that you had to take the course? I do think it's wrong. You shouldn't tell somebody that they have to be a certain weight to get their degree. We're in college. We paid, I pay over $20,000 a year. So for them to tell me I have to take this one class, that's one credit, that doesn't even count toward me graduating, I, I don't think it's right at all. The universities say they're doing it out of concern for you and other people like you in the sense that uh, overweight can lead to health problems further down the line, whether it's heart disease or diabetes or whatever. So they say it's for you that's out of concern for you. What would you reply to that? Um, I, I think it's good they, they're concerned, but they shouldn't make it to the severity that they do. It shouldn't be, I have to take this class or I won't get my degree. It shouldn't be like that at all. They should, if they want really for us to lose weight, they should have more physical education, you know, things like a gym where two, like, trainers or something around and not have all these fast food places around. I'm fine with my weight. I know when I'm ready to lose weight. If I do want to lose weight, I will lose it. But having somebody down your back telling you you have to lose weight to get your degree, I never heard of it. 
So, as you can hear, the student body is pretty divided and are likely to get even more so. Up to 30 obese students here have not yet taken the course and so they face flunking out next summer under the new rules. This is going to be one to watch. As graduation gets closer and closer, this debate can only get more heated. Ed Pilkington reporting. And we'll hear again from Ed later in today's programme. He got the chance to interview the Hollywood actor Sigourney Weaver. You know, although I wasn't really interested in making movies, I wanted to be a theatre actress. But I thought, if I have to make a movie, this is a good one to do. But first, it was Britain's biggest ever cash robbery. On February the 21st, 2006, £53 million was stolen from a Securitas depot in Tunbridge. The gang was led by two so-called cage fighters, one of whom is still at large in Morocco. The plot involved kidnapping the depot manager and his wife and child and using latex rubber masks as disguises. And it's now the subject of a book, Heist. And the author is Howard Soons. Well, they did it by what's called a tiger kidnapping, which is the nasty side of it. Uh, very, very nasty. They kidnapped the manager of the place, a man called Colin Dixon. They kidnapped Mr. Dixon's wife and one of his children, a, a young child. And they held them on a duress and es- essentially said, look, Colin, we're going to kill your wife and child. We've got guns. You can see we've got guns unless you help us. And of course, the poor man had no alternative. And essentially, he then took them in. They dressed up as policemen. He took one robber in, dressed up as a copper. And then once they were inside, a gun was drawn. Uh, Mr. Dixon opened the gates. The lorry comes in. Uh, Five more guys in commando suits march in with submachine guns. And 70 minutes later, they walk out with five tons of money. I mean, five tons in weight. But really, the finite um, aspect of the robbery was once they had 53 million quid in the lorry, they couldn't get any more in. So they were full up, and that was time to go. (laughs) And how did it all come unstuck? Well, it came unstuck very quickly. Kent Police made arrests the very next day, including a a person called Michelle Hogg, uh, who'd been hired by the gang to do the makeup because they had disguises, prosthetic disguises. And she was the daughter of a policeman, a retired metropolitan policeman, not the ideal person to hire as part of a criminal gang. She had no criminal history and she wasn't cut out for this work, it seems. And uh, she was picked up very quickly. It seems that she told people what she was doing. Uh, people rang in, there was information to the police. So she was nicked and then before long, a home is searched. There's information leading, leading the uh, police to other suspects. Within the week, a lot of people are arrested. But the, the, the ringleader, Lee Murray, slips out of the country. And he's still in Morocco. Yes, he gets the midnight ferry to France, heads up to Amsterdam, where he gets arrested, because he's a, a sort of guy who just gets arrested all the time. He's just such an obvious crook. He's just such a villainous-looking bloke. <laughs> he's a frightening-looking bloke, isn't he? So he's pulled off this robbery. He goes to Amsterdam, and he's loitering around a jeweller's store in Amsterdam, obviously wanting to buy some jewellery, because he's got st- stacks of money. The jeweller is so suspicious of this big, burly guy with tattoos on his arms that he calls the cops. The cops come round. Who are you? Well, I'm Lee Murray. Where's your passport? Hasn't got it with him. So they nick him. But amazingly, there's no Interpol alert for him. And once he, once he um, shows the Dutch police his passport, they let him go, even though he's got pockets full of cash, big wads of euros. Next stop is Morocco. His dad is a Moroccan. If you are a Moroccan, you can claim um, immunity from extradition because Morocco doesn't extradite its subjects to face trial abroad. Yeah. He's been in prison for three years. Kent police basically asked the Moroccans to pick him up 
three years ago, the summer of 2006, and they did so. But this arrest turned into a brawl, a big bust up, a big fight. Lee punched the Moroccan coppers and there was a big punch up. As a result, he was charged with assault. And when they went back to his rented villa, it was full of, it was, there was cocaine in it. So then he was charged with possession of drugs. So as a result, he, had, he faced local charges, which dragged on for months, months and months and months. And when that was finally sorted out, he was convicted of that. Then Kent police said, look, we want him back to face trial for the robbery. He then proved he was a Moroccan, which took a further period of time. So they won't extradite him. He's, he's, he's immune from extradition. But a deal has been done whereby the Moroccans will try him in Morocco for the robbery using the CPS files. But there's still also £32 million of, of the £53 million that was stolen unaccounted for. Yeah, I mean, most of the money, £32 million quid, you know, just disappeared into the criminal fraternity. It's, it's, some of it went to Morocco, of course, because Lee spent money like a prince. He lived like a king. Uh, $35,000 watches and, you know, million-dollar villas, etc. Some went to Cyprus, we believe. Some went to Dubai. Probably Kent Police and the CPS have probably spent as much money prosecuting the guys they caught as they've actually recovered. I mean, of course, they have to they have to do all they can, but it's been a hugely expensive operation for the taxpayer. Howard Soons, and you can listen to a longer version of that interview at guardian.co.uk slash audio. And Heist, the true story of the world's biggest cash robbery, is published by Simon & Schuster. Sigourney Weaver has been a feminist hero since she starred as Ripley in the Alien films. Her new film, Avatar, sees her reunited with Aliens director James Cameron. She told Ed Pilkington what it was like working on Avatar. We certainly had a lot more laughs on this movie just in the general enjoyment of it, because um, Aliens was a tough shoot for him. The crew was a little hard on him. They didn't know who he was. He kept setting up screenings of Terminator. They wouldn't bother to go. Their their point of view was, we have Ridley Scott, who's this whippersnapper from (laughs) Canada. And um, so, you know, I got to know Jim in a different way once that film ended, that he's really so witty, so charming, and so warm, and... um, he wasn't, you know, fighting for his life. We're like, let's make the girl the hero. No one will ever think that that will happen. But, you know, I mean, what we were doing, I thought, was fascinating enough. We were telling a science fiction story in this really innovative way, showing space as a real environment, not putting it on a pedestal like Kubrick had done. The creature had such grace and elegance and terror to it. You know, mm. the, the designs were so uh, mind-blowing. You know, so I... You know, although I wasn't really interested in making movies, I wanted to be a theater actress. But I thought, if I have to make a movie, this is a good one to do. This is really interesting. So is that how you saw it at the time? Did you see it no, as I'll a, just have to do oh, this. Oh, I'll do this while I'm waiting for my next stage. Yeah, I w- w- I'll do this until I get a job at the Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis where they asked me to come and be part of their their repertory company. Is that really how you felt? That, and that is what I felt they told me at Yale that I couldn't do. That really broke my heart. I felt that we were saying you can never be part of of a company like the Guthrie. And having an English mother, of course, my dream was to be part of a repertory situation the way she had done. And I've actually tried in my career to do what I would what I did want to do, which was play a big part, play a small part, be in a comedy, be in a tragedy, jump around as if I'm my own little repertory company. It's interesting, both in Alien Aliens, the Alien series and in Avatar, the company mm-hmm. is a feature. The sort of uh, of something that's nasty out there yeah. doing bad stuff. 
very much sort of fits the environmentalist mm-hmm. theme. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think the company is winning in our society? I think it's won in our society. And I think now it's time for us to take back the fort. I think it's won for too long. I think we have to save those people from themselves. I mean, when you watch the National Park series, what's so interesting is that it, it shows that people love nature. They couldn't wait to get out there. And then they'd want to build something there, and they'd wanna, they felt that nature was there to feed us and to give us profit. Mm-hmm. And they were starting to build things in the Grand Canyon, and the legislators on Capitol Hill had to stop them mm-hmm. from doing what they were doing. And now... They all go, oh, well, of course those had to be national parks. But people left to their own devices won't make wise choices for the environment. They can't see that far ahead. And I've gone up to, like we have a beautiful state park in the Adirondacks. I've gone up, followed a rental boat along the lake where you see they brought in these big bags of food from McDonald's and they dropped them overboard. They've traveled for six hours from New York City to get to this pristine wilderness, and then they're... they're, It's horrifying. It's horrifying that they're not thinking. Sigourney Weaver, Ian Chambers and Tim Maybe were the producers of today's edition of Guardian Daily. My name's John Dennis. Thank you for listening.